Okay, let's pray. Gracious Father, we call upon you, and we ask that you would help us to understand better how to approach you through, uh, through offering praise in your church, and how better to serve your church, and how to be faithful with the tools you've given us to do that. And I pray, Father, that you'd keep me from error as I speak, and I pray that you'd bring good questions to our minds as we consider these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the breakout session is Fathers at Worship, Strengthening Fathers Through Song. I never choose this, um, these titles, these topics. Some, some mag they magically appear and are assigned. So, but it's a wonderful opportunity. I've been looking for an opportunity to have to define for myself and for all of us what masculine worship is. And I don't know that I'll satisfy all of our questions. I certainly won't. But I, uh, I want to begin by explaining why that's such a perplexing term, why we find it so hard to explain. We talk a lot about masculine worship here at Clear Note, but I'm not sure we always know what we mean. I don't think I always know what I mean. I think we, know, we think we know it when we see it, but we don't know how to define it. And I think there's reasons why it's hard. The first reason is it's a new term. I don't know who coined the term or where it came from, but it's a recently developed phrase or terminology. You won't find the old dead guys talking about it. If you go perusing the Puritans, you're not going to hear them talking about, yeah, masculine worship. And they didn't have to, I believe. They didn't have to because they could assume a lot of what we can't assume anymore, the feminist heresy. Am I overstating it too much if I call it a heresy, Father Bill? It's a heresy. The feminist heresy had not reared its ugly head and wreaked havoc in culture and church like it has today. The only pre-modern anti-feminist polemic that I'm aware of is John Knox's first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. There may be others, but that's the only notorious one that I know of. It's the only one that pops up when you ask the question. And that, and that wasn't aimed at women in general. It was aimed at the several uh, female sovereigns that were reigning in Britain in those days. So it was an unusual op moment in history. There was all these women in charge, and Knox was like the only man who raised the alarm. And it was about the only time the alarm was raised, as far as I know. Prior to the Enlightenment, the church could go about her work largely assuming Scripture's teaching on the meaning and purpose of sexuality. It's not a doctrine that needed much defending, apparently. How do I know this? Because when the greatest theolog theological minds of the 17th century got together to write a confession of faith, they made a glaring mistake concerning the order of sexuality. The Westminster Confession is bad on sex. Chapter 6, of the fall of man, of sin, and of the punishment thereof. These are the first three articles. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. I could quibble with some of the language there, but I think it, you could be understood as faithful. But these next two articles, I think, are wrong, in part. By this sin, they fell. 
from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. There, too, you could say, well, what was meant was that in Adam, Eve fell with Adam. They fell. They, being the root of all mankind, is the beginning of the next article. They, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. They didn't articulate faithfully the the doctrine of the federal headship of Adam. In Adam all die, so also in Christ our new head will all be made alive. Eve does not enter into that equation. It was when Adam sinned that man fell. So they wasn't under attack. I, I don't fault them for this. It wasn't, an, it wasn't something that was on their radar, like it has to be in our day. The second evidence I would offer is the, that Puritan doctrinal and devotional literature tended to cast the soul as feminine, the, as a bride in relationship to Christ, her bridegroom. Um, a, an example of this in doctrine is John Owen's Communion with the Triune God, the second part of that book, Communion with the Son of God, Christ. Uh, Owen uses the erotic expressions of the Song of Solomon as the template for how the believer is joined to Christ. So he just, he picks up expressions from the Song of Solomon and applies it to individual souls as how they are to relate to Christ, bride to bridegroom. This is also found in Puritan poetry. Here's a couple of examples that Brandon Chastine found from yesterday. John Donne's Holy Sonnet number 14. John Donne, uh, by the way, I'm not faulting these men for their work. John Donne is a marvelous poet. I think he's worth lots of of reading, okay? But I just offer this as an example. Um, Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock. Breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captived and proved weak or untrue. Proves weak or untrue. Reason does. Then this, this is the part to note. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. He should have said something along the lines, but I am Satan's son. I'm betrothed to Satan, is how he puts it. I'm betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Another example, a little more oblique maybe, is George Herbert's Love Bade Me Welcome. George Herbert wrote the, wrote the Country Parson. If you, just a little ad for the Country Parson. It's a wonderful book. You should read it. Um, notice how the soul is cast as passive receiver in this. Um, is it a sonnet? No, it's not a sonnet. I don't know what it is. It's a poem. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack, from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. 
Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Now, these are just characteristic of the way they expressed their devotion to God. Okay? It was assumed and safely in their day, to some degree, that the, the, the soul was feminine and the God was the masculine and we relate, as the Song of Solomon describes it, personally to God as brides. You'll find these men using this, these descriptors for themselves. Um, and it's not, in those days, at the cost of their masculinity. So I'll explain later why some of this image, imagery is as problematic as I think it is, but earlier generations could take God's word of creation for granted. The term masculine worship, then, is an attempt to defend the church's worship from the corrupting influence of feminism. It's a theological term, like trinity or inerrancy, terms that don't appear in scripture but are useful for defending the faith as, uh, as opposition arises, as disagreement arises. We have to develop terms that define what we believe scripture to teach. That's what I believe masculine worship is doing. The second thing is we don't know or understand masculine piety anymore. So this is the second reason why I think it's hard for us to define what masculine worship is. We have no idea what masculine is. <laughs> no idea. There's been a huge sea change in the church following the Industrial Revolution, resulting in feminine piety becoming the gold standard for all piety thereafter. Feminine piety is the assumption, it's the baseline. It's what we think of when we think of godliness. This has been so radical a shift that we don't even know it's happened. So when we, when we talk about masculine worship, we just have no idea. Doug Wilson says, in his book, Mother Kirk, that when masculine piety occasionally rears its ugly head today, we're completely flummoxed by it. We condemn it as pride or judgmentalism or too much intensity or something like that. Manliness in religion is no longer a virtue. And there's a long and complicated history to how this came about. The backdrop of this history is the bridal mysticism of a highly influential monk. Anybody know which monk I'm talking about? He's the monk most quoted by Calvin in the Institutes. Bernard of Clairvaux. More than Augustine, Calvin looks to Bernard of Clairvaux as an authority. Well, Bernard of Clairvaux was bad on sex. <laughs> well, he was, I think he was a good monk in a lot of ways. Calvin thought he was a good one. <laughs> Um, he, he is responsible in his day, like Origen was back in the early church, for promoting that same interpretation of Song of Solomon, the, that it's directly applicable to you as a man. <clears throat> Thus he employed erotic language to describe the soul's relationship to Christ. 
his writings were very popular with, guess who? Catholic women. Certain Catholic nuns took his ideas to ex disgusting extremes. I'll spare you some of the worst ones, but let me give you some examples. Although none of it, uh, this is a quote, um, sorry, Bernard issued some limiting disclaimers. It's important to realize that he wasn't just like hog wild with this idea of considering himself a bride. He did say this to his credit. Although none of us will dare arrogate for his own soul the title of bride of the Lord, nevertheless we are members of the church, which rightly boasts of this title and the reality that it signifies. And hence we may justifiably assume a share in this honor. So it's not quite as bad as I'm making it out to be, although I, I do think there's a lot of room in a share in this honor that, uh, that probably means I disagree with him. Maybe, maybe not. But anyway, Catholic nuns, I certainly do disagree with. They took to very gross extremes. Hildegard of Bingen, um, a famous nun and composer, in her song, Old I'm not good with Latin, Dulcissime Amator or something. She says this, O sweetest lover, sweetest embracer, in your blood we are joined to you with nuptial rites, scorning men and choosing you. So you're right, the, the fact that their cloister does play into <laughs> to this. <laughs> Others, like the German nun Margaret Ebner, took this idea to disturbing extremes. In her writings, she claims to have felt her spouse's wonder, wondrous powerful thrusts against her heart. She hears Jesus speak to her these words. This is Jesus speaking to Margaret. Your sweet love finds me. Your inner desire compels me. Your burning love binds me. Your pure truth holds me. Your fiery love keeps me near. I want to give you the kiss of love, which is the delight of your soul, a sweet inner movement, a loving attachment. Monks, too, were writing in this vein. Henry Suso, writing as servitor, claims that the Heavenly Father created me for his tender, loving bride. Wisdom, which Servitor feels a, quote, strange longing for, says to Servitor, quote, I place the ring of our betrothal on your hand to have and to hold forever, end quote. Such was the sexually confused state of pre-reformational devotion. So let's pause and consider what is the right understanding of the use of bridal imagery in Scripture. Clairvaux was right to issue his disclaimer that it's the church that rightly claims this title. But what do we make of it? What is uh, our relationship to God as individuals? Well, Paul, uh, um, as your book points out very well, that there's this great mystery to it, as it were, in the Old Covenant, that there's God's developing sexuality. He gives sexuality to the world and reveals it clearly for what it means in all its cosmic glory in the new covenant. And that is in Ephesians 5. The marriage ordinance which God established before the fall, which read, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh, Genesis 2.24, is shown by the apostle Paul to apply to the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, not to the individual soul. It's a corporate analogy. What is the relationship of the individual soul to the Godhead? It is familial. It is sexual in a sense. 
but it's not marital. What is it? Stephen did a good job of explaining it today. It's we're sons. We have a father. We are sons. And what about with Christ? We are brothers with him, fellow heirs. Romans 8, Galatians 4, Ephesians 1, adopted as sons, it says of God. And brothers with Christ, also in Romans 8, fellow heirs with Christ, glorified with him. Hebrews 2, though, I just love. Hebrews 2.11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If there's any gender bending in the gospel then, it's that women become men. And this is to do them a, a great honor and to preserve for them a great inheritance. It's to elevate women to the position of sons in relationship to God. Did the Protestant reformers bring clarity to this point of doctrine? Did they do away with bridal mysticism along with sacerdotalism and Marian idolatry and justification by faith plus works? Or however you want to explain that. I don't think they were guilty of some of the grosser abuses of it, but no, they didn't. And I didn't see any need to. Biblical manhood and womanhood had yet to come under widespread assault from the evil one, feminism. Nevertheless, there remained embedded in the DNA of the Western church this sexual confusion that we are, each of us, individually, brides of Christ. And then comes along two cataclysmic forces. The economic disestablishment of women in the wake of the Industrial Revolution and the rejection of Calvinism that was at the heart of the Second Great Awakening. Since these two events hit us, our understanding of theology, ecclesiology, piety, sexuality, and virtually everything else haven't been the same since. We don't know what hit us. We don't even remember what life was like before it. All of our assumptions have changed. Let me try, as best I can, to summarize this history, the history of this, briefly. And if you want to know more, I recommend this book to you, Not for the Faint of Heart. It's big. It's a little bit academic. The Feminization of American Culture by Ann Douglas, a feminist. And fascinating. Like, evangelicals are so pathetic in truth-telling. Often pagans are so much better at telling the truth than we are. This is an incredible insight into, uh, ultimately, I, I won't go into it, but I, I, I could talk to you about what's so fascinating about this book sometime, okay? But let me try to summarize her argument, and I'm going to use Doug Wilson's summary as a help as we go. The first cataclysmic force that culture faced was the rise of sentimental and domestic feminism. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, that's when industry moved out of the home into the factory, the role of women in America was at the center of the economy. Women managed the home, manufactured the cloth, processed the food, fed the entire family, and so forth. That is, at home. 
But with the rise of industrialized wealth, the role of women shifted from producing to consuming. This is what we call disestablished. The women were, in effect, disestablished and became decoration. They became decoration. Middle class women became a new leisure class. With money to spend and time to fill, this is the first time in history that women have lived this way. And one of the things they began to do was to write and read sappy novels. <laughs> Victorian novels are infamous for being um, like potpourri, right? A bunch of wood chips soaked in old ladies' cologne in a nice decorative bowl. <laughs> the Victorian novel. So, so here's this market that has time and money, and there's all these authors that start orienting their writing to what women want, what these women want. And so the, the novel changes. Imagine um, the cultural impact today if all the television shows were as bosomy as Oprah. You couldn't, everywhere you looked, it's Oprah. Or if you went to see Saving Private Ryan, you get Sense and Sensibility instead. <laughs> I like it, by the way, I'm just saying. <laughs> this new market force of women didn't just impact literature, though, but also the church. And here's a rough outline of how. The second cataclysmic force was the sentimental revolt of ministers against the strictures of theological Calvinism. Calvinism was deemed to be severe, harsh, cold. Maybe in some cases it was at the time. So these ministers revolted. There were ministers on the, in the left and on the right revolting in different ways. On, on the uh, left, I guess you would have um, Unitarians. I don't know which one to call the left and which kind of the right, but on one side you'd have the Unitarians in the, in the New East revolting from Calvinism in their particular direction. And then on the right, you have Charles Finney and the revivalists revolting from Calvinism in their direction. Both reacting, though, to being anti-Calvinists. Unitarians present Jesus as like a, not divine, but a good guy, and deny original sin. And then there's Charles Finney, who was who, uh, this is Doug Wilson's characteristically cute way of saying things, that the Charles Finney was, and his men were greatly swelled with a humanistic, democratic spirit, which they all thought was the Holy Ghost. And then he says, see Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism, <laughs> which I highly recommend. If you want to understand Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening, Ian Murray's Revival and Revivalism. What he means is Charles Finney was a charlatan who believed that he was God and that all you needed for a revival was the right technique. So revival, this is the point of Murray's book, is that revival, in its true sense, is something, is a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit that you cannot create. Finney said that revival is nothing but the right use of means. All, and the and why reason I say it's, he thought he was God is because these are techniques that Charles Finney developed. 
All this occurred while the churches of New England were in the process of being disestablished themselves, no longer receiving funding from tax revenues. More important than the loss of tax money, however, was the fact that these congressional clergymen, long accustomed to their role as a central part of the establishment, found themselves outsiders, no, not, not having, now having to compete for parishioners, just like, Doug Wilson says, just like the lowly Baptists and the frontier Methodists. The women, with time on their hands and money for the offering plates, provided a ready audience for these ministers, and the anti-Calvinist ministers on both sides of the aisle provided a suitably sentimental gospel for the women accustomed to their feminized literary entertainment. Are you following me? So an alliance was formed between the clergymen and the women, and a new spiritual norm was established with the church. The, the reason this book is so fascinating is that Anne Douglas, a feminist, is unhappy with this. She looks back on the old, the rigorous Calvinism and its intellectual life as an intellectual herself and, and is, is boo-hooing all this because what this has brought about is the ruin of the intellectual life, of the life of the mind. Have you heard the joke that there are actually three sexes? Men, women, and who? Clergymen. <laughs> this is the time, I, I suppose, when this joke takes on meaning. They domesticated God, one way or the other. The revivalistic Arminian way or the Unitarian um, New England way. The God of traditional Calvinism was a big God, a sovereign God, a holy God, a dangerous God. Think of Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire and being slain by God, destroyed. This is the God of the Bible. And man, his creature, wicked and depraved, this is the man of Calvinism, the man of the Bible, the man that I am, the man that you are. Unitarianism and revivalism came along and each in its own way lowered God and elevated man, made God approachable, safe, and tame. And where were all the men? They were out in the marketplace raking in the dough. It was the Industrial Revolution. Man was busy becoming a materialist and allowed the church to become the domain of women. Consequently, spirituality, piety, started to be understood only in terms of femininity. These spiritual women, with all this time on their hands, set about to save men from themselves. They went about rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying. They did this through the Sunday School Movement, the Foreign Missions Movement, the Temperance Movement, the Salvation Army, and others. Women were hugely significant in these enterprises. Songs were hugely significant in these enterprises. And we'll get to that in a minute. Oftentimes, women were leading the charge. Think Temperance. Think the Salvation Army. What were they 
And all of these enterprises, these works, were attempting to save souls. What were they saving them from? <coughs> the best way to understand what they're saving them from is to ask what they were saving them to. They were saving them to a domesticated, feminized God who was much more like a sentimental, cloying, mo cloying mother than a holy, sovereign father. Trust me, I grew up in a church that was like revivalism. It was like a time capsule. Revivalism never stopped. <laughs> Southern Baptist Church out in, in the Bible buckle. It's, it's like being under a cloying mother. You look at the Bible, and it says things, and then you look at the preacher, and he doesn't say them. It's just... <laughs> He under, fear is not fear. Fear means respect, you know. But it says fear. I don't understand. Men could get saved by this God who was very much like mom, but it would come at the cost of their masculinity. They would have to accept this God. And all this found expression, here we go, in Christian song. Song was very important. Um, just, I don't have time to tie all this in, but I just want some, there's like a couple of you who know, and I want you to know that I know, that this, the church was singing psalms up until just this point. And these works that were, were developing these, these were parachurch works. Revival, revival meetings were parachurch meetings. They became so successful in numbers, though, that their influence was undeniable, and it came back into the church. So it was through the back door, and through the work of women, and through the advance of feminism, that we get the hymnody that we enjoy today. Not all, that doesn't mean all the hymns are bad and that I'm willing to make an argument that we, the answer is to just sing the psalms again. I just want you to know that this is how we got songs. That's the rough <coughs> outline, the, the hymns and the, the songs of human composure that we sing today and, and, and benefit from. But many of these songs um, exemplify, many especially the gospel songs, exemplify the domestic view of God, the bosomy, mothering God that these women loved. And, and so even Rescue the Perishing, it was like these songs were, it's like women doing what mothers want to do. <laughs> they want to go out, save the poor men. Bring them in from the fields of sin, you know. Um, we, I was talking about this in the pastor's college this last semester, and we were just singing through some of the gospel songs, and I thought, oh, we'll sing Love Lifted Me. Um, you, does anybody know Love Lifted Me? Well, it wasn't a good example of what we were talking about, I didn't think, until suddenly we got to the chorus. And it, it says, Love lifted me, and the men respond, even me. I was like, just, I, I was absolutely floored. <laughs> the women sing, love lifted me, and the men respond, even me. 
<laughs> Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. These gospel songs capitalize on what, I don't know what else to call, but mother hunger. Think of how mother, how poignant a word mother is. And for a man who works hard and, and carries around the guilt of his sin, you present to him a Lord, a Jesus, who's, who's like his mom. So just always welcome him in when he's messed up. Pour him a glass of milk. <coughs> I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And he walks with me and he talks with me. It's just, it's just like what women want. And I don't, I don't say that to offend or put women down. It, maybe I shouldn't have said that because I can't really defend it. <laughs> Help me out. Just to encourage you at this point, four years ago in a suburban church outside of Washington, D.C., I was almost chased out of the church house when my wife and I were giving seminars. When I took on that particular <laughs> the male worship leader ripped me up one side Whoa. and stomped out of the room. It would be like that back at my home church, too. It's a, it is a sacred cow of a lot of these, uh, these churches. Well, yeah. This is a book called I Sing for Cannot Be Silent, The Feminization of American Hymnody. And what is the problem with that song, Father Bill? If, well, while I look for this. It's the bridal imagery that comes again. Uh, Jesus is speaking in highly sentimental, feminized ways to men who are singing this. I mean, the men have to take on themselves the persona of a woman. He walks with me and talks with me and tells What's conveyed poetically is it's um, what she. I was looking for it, but what she says in this book is that actually what it conveys is not so much romance between a man and a woman as bosom companionship between two women. It's like they they like to have their tea, they like to go into a garden, they like to spend time with one another and share their intimate secrets. Um, she makes a good case for that. It's actually not so much sexual in that way as it is bosom companionship that's conveyed between two women. It's a sentimental song. Um, we'll never get to any applications or any questions if we don't forge ahead. Eventually, as some of you, maybe most of you have experienced, bridal imagery in a very explicit sexual sense, comes back. So revivalism, you could say, casts it in domestic terms, mothering terms. But then come in our day, in the wake of the sexual revolution, and I think there's good reason for, there's a good history, there's a way to understand how this came about. But in our day, 
after the sexual revolution, the church has brought back into its singing explicit eroticism. The Song of Solomon is now applied to us individually as we sing in contemporary Christian music. Shane and Shane, I, I think we'll try to show a little bit. I don't know how many of you will be able to see this. I didn't even test the volume. Oh, yikes, that was a bad thing not to do. We'll start quiet. Mi Yeah, it's on my screen too. It'll, it'll work if you do. do it again. Thank you, Aaron. <coughs> this is a song called Yearn. This is a worship song for a church. I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with posh, passion. I think he's just from Alabama. So that illustrates a couple of things that unfortunately many of us have experienced and both the content being um, erotic and the leadership being effeminate. Um, I'll spare you uh, more videos, but let me read to you even worse lyrics. This is a song called All Around Me. If you look it up, it's a uh, made most popular by David, the David Crowder band from Texas. It has like several many hundred thousand views on YouTube and it's off an album called Church Music. My, it's by Flyleaf though, who's this young um, rebellious looking woman. My hands are searching for you. My arms are outstretched towards you. I feel you on my fingertips. My tongue dances behind my lips for you. This fire rising through my being, burning, I'm not used to seeing you. I'm alive, I'm alive. I can feel you all around me, thickening the air I'm breathing, holding on to what I'm feeling, savoring this heart that's healing. My hands float up above me, and you whisper you love me, and I begin to fade into, of course, our secret place. We'll move on. There's no time to read others, but these are examples of bridal mysticism and they're very popular very popular in in evangelical churches today even when modern worship songs aren't explicitly erotic they tend to emphasize subjective experience 
The, the church used to be, this is something I've heard Tim say, the church used to be a community of shared faith and doctrine. It's become a community of shared emotive experience. We get together and feel together. And those feelings are primarily feminine in their expression. What time is it? Okay. When were we supposed to end? I have 10 minutes and you have 10 minutes for questions? Something like that? Okay. How should we respond? I'm sure I have you. I'm sure most of you have experienced something along uh, that ranks on the ick factor of, of worship, both in its content and in its leadership. <coughs> How should we respond today? And this is where what masculine worship comes in and is a useful term. We need to recover what we're calling masculine worship. It needs to be masculine theologically and lyrically. It, we need to bring back into our worship the fatherhood of God. Our God, our help in ages past, the song we sang just before lunch. It's the fatherhood of God, an eternal, all-powerful God. A God who we can understand certain concrete things about. A God who acts. A God who provides and preserves as a father protects and provides and preserves his family. We need to bring back the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We need to bring back the depravity of man. We sing a song in, in our worship. It's on Glorious Things, one of our albums called Lord, We Confess Our Numerous Faults. <laughs> it's so helpful to me as a man. I assume to you as a woman. Lord, the language of Scripture is, of course, that our sins have gone up over our heads. It's so helpful, the words of Scripture, when it comes to our sinfulness. My, our sins have gone up over our heads. These are what covenant people say to their covenant God. Forgive me, Lord. My sins have gone over my head. Lord, we confess our numerous faults. We need to bring back final judgment. We sing a song called, and this is a song from the hymnal, Prepare my soul to meet him is what we've called it, but I think it's taken, the, the real title is taken from the great God, what do I see and fear? Here, see and hear. We need to bring back hell. We need to bring back the inevitability of having to stand before this holy God with our sinfulness, and what are we going to do about it? We need to sing about Christ's vanquishing of death. There's this song that we've been trying to figure out how to sing for a long time called Hosanna to the Prince of Light. Hosanna to the Prince of Light who clothed himself in clay, who entered iron gates of death and tore the bars away. Death is no more the prince of, the king of dread. Since our Emmanuel rose, he took the tyrant's sting away and conquered all our foes. And then what is it? This just gets better and better. Uh, 
See how the conqueror mounts aloft and to his father flies with scars of honor. It's just so beautiful. We need to sing that. We need to bring back Christian warfare, sanctification, hard work and struggle. We need to bring back danger. I read an, sorry. I read an article this week somewhere, I think in Wired, about a, uh, about how kids should be shown horror movies. Or not, not the worst ones, but maybe some Richard Scary. No, not Richard Scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's the name like. <laughs> well, maybe that says something about my childhood. <laughs> it's a. Uh, no, what's the dude? What's the. the, the uh, Tim Burton, it was mentioned, but it's like the Ed- Edward Gorey. Edward Gorey, I think, is another cartoonist that writes like macabre, dark things. Um, they need to like be exposed to this because kids are bored today, and they can handle they can handle fear. We protect them from what will protect what 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 makes them bored. Well, they, we make them bored by protecting them from some things they can actually handle. And and it's a wicked article, but immediately I thought of if they only knew God, they would not be bored. <laughs> they would have so much to think about if, if we would give them a God to fear. They would not be bored. Men are leaving the church in droves. Statistics are, say that it's just like, it's awful. They're just departing the church. It's been going on for a while. <laughs> Women far outnumber men in church. They outnumber them in participation in church. And there's, a, there's an interesting article by an Eastern Orthodox lady named uh, Frederica Matthews Green about why men are leaving the evangelical church and becoming Eastern Orthodox. Let's see if I have that. The word, I, mean, just, I just want to spout off the words she uses. Um, Because in Eastern Orthodoxy, the theme of spiritual warfare is ubiquitous. Because Eastern Orthodoxy is serious, it's difficult, it's demanding. I'm challenged in a deep way, not to feel good about myself, but to become holy. It's rigorous. Men know what is expected of them. (laughs) Orthodoxy presents a reasonable set of boundaries. It's easier for guys to express themselves in worship if there are guidelines about how it's supposed to work, especially when those guidelines are so simple and down to earth that you can just set out and start doing something. There are clear-cut physical actions. I used to try to describe what worship was like in my... uh, It's on camera. In my... In some churches I've been to. As a teenager, I would go. These were like more charismatic churches. I went to like a revivalistic Southern Gospel quartet singing church, the cool church where things were happening, where they had contemporary Christian music, and I would go. And I would, looking back, I know that it was like 
I don't know how to describe it except to say it's like worship, what, the, what he wanted me to do, what the guy up there was asking me to do was like feel something around here. Like that's all I, and I couldn't, I, had, I would work to try to, to do it, whatever it was. I, I was either supposed to cry or to feel something. It's like here, that's all. <laughs> I couldn't, it wasn't clear. They weren't telling me, but that's like, all the cues were added up to, I was supposed to feel something around here. <laughs> and I, I would work the whole time to try to develop it and express it. And once in a while it would work, but rarely. Clear guidelines, clear cut. There's a regi regimen of discipline, she says. Now, I'm not advocating Eastern Orthodoxy, but only I'm saying that men need a God, who a God of order, a God of justice, a God of yes and a no, a God of limits, of boundaries, a God of covenant. And we need that lyrically. We need that theologically. It, it's not just songs, but here we are talking about song. We need the content of scripture, the, the groundedness, the objectivity of God the transcending nature of God. Not just always and only, he's very near, he's right here with us. He is in Christ, but we never get there in a logical way. If you've been to our worship, if you've been to a good Reformed church, you've, ex you've experienced this even if you don't know. We, we start with God's, with God's transcendence, with his holiness, and we move logically through confession of sin to Jesus and the gospel. Now you might say, well, there, yeah, that's wonderful. You've just made the perfect argument for traditional hymns. Or you may say you've made a perfect argument for the chanting psalms. I know I could count on you. <laughs> In fact, yeah, yeah. It, so, so it needs to be, it needs to be masculine, objective, lyrically, theologically. It needs to be masculine functionally. It can't be men falsetto and chairs with candles. Did you notice the candles? I don't know if you saw that. There were candles, lots of them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, "Act like men, be strong." Act like men, be strong. It has to be max masculine functionally. I don't know what, how else to say that. It's not enough to have the body parts to have them correct. That's not enough. It has to act like a man. It needs to be masculine stylistically. Now, this is the, where I'll probably lose some of you. Maybe you, Mark. That's okay. I just want to try to... I've never had an opportunity to try to make this argument, so I'm just going to float it, okay? <laughs> I think there's different ways to do this, but however you end up, the, the, the style that you choose, and you, you, you grant me that there's lots of style options. Whatever style you choose, however you use it, it has to equal masculine, clear boundaries, strength, <laughs> It has to be appropriate to the, the, the language we've brought back in, okay? It has to be well-suited to judgment. It has to be well-suited to holiness. 
has to be well suited to power and strength and vanquishing. One of the reasons I think we haven't made Hosanna the Prince of Light work is that we're not quite <laughs> brave enough to go there or to take the rest of you there. Christ's power and triumph over death. So as we try to convey that, we have a tune that works. We have an, an arrangement that we're not brave enough to use. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to make just a little pitch before we end for the use of rock instruments, as you've experienced already in, in worship here. There's, po there's three possible um, responses to effeminacy stylistically. We could capitulate. That's what contemporary Christian music does. We're all agreed that we're not going to capitulate. It's faithless. It's panting after numbers. It's, it's just faithless. What, what I don't want to do, but what some people do, and, and it may, uh, it's, it's, is to re-pristinate. To re-pristinate. So you, in light of all the history I've just told you, the option is either to capitulate or to re-pristinate, which is to turn black, back the clock to when it was working. So forget everything that's happened in the last 100, 150 years and, or, or longer and get back to what the reformers were doing. So you could sing the Psalms. You could sing the hymn book. Forget the gospel songs and, and forget the contemporary Christian music and all that it's brought us in instrumentation. I would suggest that to be masculine today in the day in which we live, in the world that we live, stylistically, we'd better learn to use these instruments. They're the instruments of our culture. They're the instruments that men understand. They're the instruments that men accept as masculine. It's not... It's, when a dude sees a chick play an electric guitar, he knows it's wrong. <laughs> an electric guitar is manly. <laughs> we have to be, if we're going to be warriors today, I think we have to be able to distinguish between yesterday's forms and yesterday's truths. We must have yesterday's truths, right? But we don't necessarily have to have yesterday's forms. It is possible to speak the language of a culture, but to speak it faithfully, to use the language of the culture in order to speak the old truths. Now, at some point, it breaks down, and we have to be very discerning. To use the instruments that we're using here is risky, it's dangerous, but it's, it's clearly these instruments of themselves are understood to be masculine. And we play them in a way as to make that clear, I hope. So here's, as uh, we're running out of time, but let me, th this is the best example I have. We have a farmer's market in Bloomington, and it's where all of the um, pagans go to 
What are the three? To feel cool. And they have live music down there. If we were to take the old truths and put them to bluegrass music, which we wouldn't have to do it, it's already done. Bluegrass songs are filled with the old truths, with human depravity, with death, with judgment. Just, it's just in there. If we were to go down there and play bluegrass at the Bloomington Farmer's Market, they'd love it. We could sing about Jesus all day long. They'd love it. If we were to take the Good Shepherd Band, even unplugged, down to the Bloomington Firewoods Market, all hell would break loose. <laughs> I'm convinced of it. It would be the most offensive thing we could do at the Farmers Market. More offensive maybe than preaching, I don't know. <laughs> I think they've had that before. <laughs> if we were to go down there with the Good Shepherd Band and start singing Hiding Place, unplugged, it would be offensive. Same truths, but express. I think that it's because style is like this. Style is um, uh, how to express it. Style is I'm tired. My brain just shut down. What was I trying to say, Phil? I think maybe it becomes more truthful when you put it in form. Well, bluegrass is part of our, culture, our shared cultural heritage, which we accept. We're able to look back on it and, un, and take it or leave it, understand it as part of who we were. And to feel sentimental about it. And to feel sentimental about it. Straight note singing St. Matthew's Passion. Yeah, and pagans get together and sing these songs yeah, for fun. In Bloomington, you could go down to the farmer's market and you could sing, you could chant the, the, the psalms, and they would love it. I and mean, they wouldn't hear a word of it. Yes, they would. They're performing Bach all the time at IU. I've played in the concerts, and nobody is coming to know the Lord. Nobody's hearing it. I, th I think to be, to be edgy to cut through, to get people's attention, um, we should have our worship be in the vulgar tongue, okay? But it, I think it also benefits us to have these instruments brought into the church and to not keep them for the other six days of the week and preserve the organ and the piano for, for God. I think it benefits us and forces us to to like not escape into existential la-la land, okay? It's like we have the same encounter with that music. We know that it's the vulgar tongue, that it's, that it, when you sing the songs that we sing with the instruments we sing, I don't think there's, what we use, I don't think there's any escaping the, 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 the fact that we mean it. There's something about style and content that indicates whether you mean it or not, to accuse people to understand how to take this. And when you take their language and you say God's truth with it, it's inescapable. And you either have to submit to God or you have to gnash your teeth and run. And both happen. Okay, it's time. Two minutes for questions? Uh -huh. Do you, I'll take some questions, if well, one or two, if you have them.
from the conservative background that I do in our church, one of the, the things that I see, not in this church, not in this worship, but I have seen in other places, is that the music becomes a performance mm -hmm. versus worship. You have the people on the stage who are doing the worshiping for watching. How do you keep that from happening? It's a failure of the pastor. <laughs> I mean, any pastor who's worth his salt should discipline it. Everything has to be disciplined in the church. And uh, what I'm saying is if you apply discipline and thought to how to, how to keep that from happening, it can happen with anything. Okay? If I could answer that Please. as well. Um, the other thing that, that, you will, that you will normally see when that is going on is that the sermons, the preaching, is also a performance. Mm -hmm. And so the preaching needs to change. And, and Jody immediately said it's the pastor's responsibility. It's the pastor's responsibility to make the sermon also not be a performance, but to be applied to the hearts of the people. And when there's not an expectation on the part of the church, the pastors, the elders, the worship leaders, anybody, that anything that happens up on the stage is actually brought into and applied to the hearts of the people, then is there any surprise that the worship would also be that way? And this happens in both Reformed and non-Reformed churches. And so that's why you say it can happen anywhere. It can happen in churches that... Like Phil saw it on the opposite end of the spectrum, with highbrow performance, conservative music, and it's still just performance. It's never it, the people worshiping along with. So, so, so the same thing happens with sermons when the sermons are not applied to the hearts of the people. And so often, almost always in my experience, they go hand in hand. That if the sermon is a performance and there's no expectation that it will be applied and convicting to the hearts of the people and forcing them to choose this day whom they will serve, then of course the music is going to do the same thing. I don't know if that's helpful, but it's doing it. I wanted to, I don't, I haven't seen worship here. Uh, I'll see it tomorrow. Are you coming? Uh, yes, I am. Great. But I have a question, uh, it, 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 building on this, what you do or do not do here. I noticed, and that's my vision has tricked me, that the Everybody on the podium up there is man. It's a man. Is that deliberate? Or yeah. Is there a, is there a uh, canon or a congregation that controls the sex of somebody on the platform? Um, it, uh, I have unwritten rules that I, we don't talk about. But, and the, the rule is I ask who I want to, to be involved. And... Um, and I use who I want to use where, and we, I do sometimes use women. We use women to lead women in when we have a res, uh, responsive echo part. Um, we use women to, I, I, so I'll, I'll, I'll voice my unspoken rule now. <laughs> I don't know how far I'm willing to defend it, but I generally use women to play decorative instruments that, that lend beauty to this otherwise strong core of manliness. So Caitlin, until she had a baby, was pl often playing viola in the band as a way of adding decoration. You can't, masculine worship is not just us men sitting around fire pits and smoking, <laughs> roasting chickens, right? You can't have, you can't have, yeah, dear. You can't have, um, 
you can't have good music without having feminine elements to it. It's, as, as an art, music is understood to be feminine because of how intangible, untangible it is. Intangible? Um, so I use women generally to add color, to, to be decorative. Um, it's, not, it's not to belittle what they're doing. It it's to add beauty. Yeah. Even when you watch a rock and roll band, you know who's leading that band, whether it's the lead guitar or the drummer. Yeah. It has to do with who is leading. Drums and bass and guitars lead a band. It was one of the f I didn't know much about bands because I was a violinist, but when I, I, I knew that. And so we worked for the first couple of years to make the band work like a band because that was the decision of the elders. We were going to have a band, so I tried to make it act like one. And, tr and very quickly realized you have to have men doing those jobs. And men won't follow women. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. I think we have to end. Appreciate your attention. And Wayne, would you close us in prayer?